Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, we begin today with the allegations of misconduct at the top of government, with the Prime Minister now facing an Electoral Commission investigation into whether he or the Conservative Party broke the law. The probe stems from a failure to disclose the original source of funding for the renovation of the Prime Minister's official residence at Downing Street. Well, during yesterday's Prime Minister's questions, the Labour leader Keir Starmer called the Prime Minister major sleaze, as Boris Johnson responded to repeated questions about how the refurbishment was initially paid for. He goes on and on, Mr Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it. Well, for his part, Johnson maintains he broke no laws. Well, our guest today is Luke Pollard, Labour MP for Plymouth, Sutton and Devonport, also Shadow Secretary of State for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Uh, Luke, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us today. Um, We're going to talk about Labour's new plan for the English countryside in just a moment, a key document, of course, which you've recently issued. But first, let's talk about the story that's front and centre today. Isn't accusing the Prime Minister of lying, as Labour is now doing, high-risk strategy. I mean, you have to have evidence to make an accusation like that, don't you? Well, I'd like the Prime Minister to be absolutely frank with the British people about where the money came from to originally pay for the the refurbishment of the Downing Street flat. We know that the Prime Minister now says he paid for it at the end of the process, but I want to know who paid for it initially, where the eyes of the nation, the media spotlight, wasn't on them. Did it come from the taxpayer? Did it come from the Conservative Party? Did it come from the Prime Minister himself? Or was it a Tory donor who originally paid for it? And if it was, what did they get for it in return? I think we have a need for a, a, a better type of government at the top that is more honest, more accountable. So at the moment, it feels like we've got a government mired in sleaze that seems to have one rule for people close to the Prime Minister and another rule for everyone else. And I just don't think people like that. That's not the type of politics that I want to see. And that's why we need a a bit of transparency and accountability about what's happened here. And once we've had it on the Downing Street flat, let's have it on the text messages to business leaders about changing tax rates. Let's have it about PPE contracts that went to Tory donors. Let's have some transparency, because without it, I'm afraid the government won't be able to concentrate on the issues that they should be concentrating on. That is the jobs crisis. That is the NHS waiting list. And that is the, you know, the challenge for how we recover from this awful pandemic. Yes, but Luke, you are saying that he lied. Did the Prime Minister lie about the funding of the redecoration of the flat? 
Well, the thing is, I don't know whether he's telling the truth or not. I know that we've got a prime minister who is very casual with the truth, shall we say, who doesn't often uh, uh, say stuff that is, uh, is as frank as I'd like it to be. And we've seen the video uh, from Peter Stefanovic, which now has 13 million views of him lying repeatedly at the dispatch box before. That's why we need these reviews to get to the bottom of this. Because I don't want to be in a situation where something and everyone goes, is that a lie or not? We shouldn't be in that situation. That's not a place that is good for our democracy. And it's not good for the uh, the priorities that I think the government should be having at the moment. That's why this review is needed. And uh, we need to get to the bottom of what has happened, who paid for what, and what favours were done in return. All, all right. But I mean, as you sort of hinted, the, the government wants to get on with other things, of course. And actually, maybe the voters do. I mean, is this something that actually really matters to voters? Do they, they care far more about the COVID recovery than about who paid for the Prime Minister's curtains? I mean, this is not a theme that actually is working for you and the Labour Party in getting your message over to voters. Well, I've been door knocking quite a lot in the local elections and, and, and sleaze is coming up. It is coming up on the doors. That's something that people don't like. Now, the vast majority of our country are hardworking, they pay their taxes, and they want the people in government, be it the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, or whoever else, to follow the rules, to do the right thing. And they know something's murky about this. They know that taxpayers' money was used to give huge PPE contracts to Tory donors with a VIP fast track. So if you knew uh, a Conservative cabinet minister, you were uh, able to get PPE contracts faster than if you didn't, which wasn't good for businesses in, in, in Plymouth who wanted to make PPE but weren't fast-tracked. I think there's a real need for accountability here because our politics does seem broken. It does seem broken and it, the rot seems to start from Downing Street. That's where the solution has to come from. And the longer the Prime Minister refuses to tell the truth about where the money originally came from, because that's an answer that he hasn't given. He t- he's telling us who's paid for the cash for cushions affair now, but who was the original payer of the bills? Once we know that, then I think we, that's, the, that's the way for him to put this issue to bed. If he paid for it originally, why not just say? Uh, well, because you, it would all go it, away. It's interesting that you say that it's an issue that's coming up on the doorstep when you speak to people. In the polling, Tories are still far ahead of Labour, given everything that's happened. How do you explain that right now? Yeah, we, we have a mountain to climb to recover from the, the incredibly bad defeat that we had in 2019. And it will take time to build back trust. Uh, we know that the government's enjoying a, a bit of a vaccine bounce at the moment. And I, I want the vaccine to work. I'm 41. I'm not yet in the 42-year-old bracket so I can have my vaccine. But I want the vaccine to, to, to be rolled out successfully because that's the only way that we can save lives and livelihoods here. So to a certain extent, you know, uh, we've got a, a rough ride ahead. Um, but there's still, there's still the right thing to do here. Now, lots of questions about, you know, whether this is helping Labour in the polls, but this should be the, there should be a right and a wrong thing about ethics in politics and about transparency in politics. And I think we're, we're losing sight of this assumption that we now seem to have where people say, oh, uh, isn't it priced into the electorate that the Prime Minister lies repeatedly? At what point was it acceptable that the Prime Minister has this priced in about him? At what point is it acceptable that we've given up on, on truth and accountability at the top of government? And for me, that, that's a thing that is worth pursuing 
regardless of whether it increases our vote or not, because it's the right thing to do. Because if we lose confidence in the issues, in the systems of transparency and accountability that we have in government, well, then what more dirty sleeves uh, and dodgy deals could be done? That's not good for our democracy. That's why it's important that we get to the truth here. Look, let's move on to something that you're very closely involved in in your in your shadow cabinet role, of course, which is rural England. And you last week set out your plan, Labour's plan for that, your ambition to be, quotes, the party of the great British countryside. Now, farming is obviously at the core of this. You, you, you live in a rural constituency, of course. What are you, what is Labour offering farmers? Yeah, well, uh, my, my view as a West Country lad, who my little sister is a sheep farmer, is that we've got a government that's taken rural communities for granted, but an opposition that hasn't always turned up. And that's at the heart of what we've launched as part of our rural review. So Keir Starmer's given me a challenge that he wants Labour's next manifesto to offer as much hope and opportunity to those people living in rural areas as it does to those people living in towns and cities. That's a really big challenge. And the party's made progress on this already. You know, when when the debate over... Uh, the post-Brexit trade deals and the food standards uh, were there. Labour was the party that was sticking up for our farmers to stop them being undercut by food produced to lower standards abroad. It wasn't the Tories, it was the Labour Party doing that. And when it comes to, uh, and when it comes to big issues like rural crime, uh, it's Labour that's speaking up to demand action. So we've got a long way to go here, but that's why starting a process to say, look, we're going to turn up we're going to listen and we're going to act on what we hear is a really important way of building trust. It, you know, we're not mm. going to see uh, a trust rebuilt overnight. There won't be one policy area that if we move it from, from one position to another, that will win the trust of rural communities. It will take time. And that's what, um, that's what the Rural Review that, uh, that I launched last week sets out. It's that ambition to, uh, to be the party of the countryside. Yeah. And if we have a situation where Labour's fighting for the rural vote, as is the Conservatives, then at the end of it, we should have better policy for the countryside. And people who live in rural areas shouldn't, uh, won't be regarded as an afterthought, which I fear is where they've been treated for far too long. OK, well, I'm a city slicker, born and bred. Uh, and so my question is much more about financing. Isn't the actual problem um, with the countryside right now and with farmers the issue of replacing EU era subsidies and also changing the role of farmers, which is to make them sort of more custodians of the countryside and less about actual food production, you know, given um, the need to to change with climate change. So what about those EU subsidies? It's a very fair question. So um, I, 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 as a, even as a big Remainer, I wasn't a fan of the common agricultural policy, which I think is, is, uh, was bad for our countryside. Uh, the replacement that the government's come up with sounds good as the headlines. It's moving money from being effectively a proxy for land ownership to one that pays farmers for uh, environmental stewardship. So looking after soil health or planting hedgerows or tree health, things that do generally matter. The problem is the formula and the approach they've taken effectively means it will be support for big industrialised agriculture, but won't give the support that small family farms need. Now, family farms are the backbone of our rural economy. They're important in every single part of rural England. And although there's a place for big industrialised agriculture, I don't want to see a situation where we lose small family farms by dint of these reforms. And that's what 
potentially we're facing yep. with the way that they've been written currently. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start in Northern Ireland, Caroline. Yes, Sinn Féin has called on the incoming DUP leader to be aware of the desire for progressive political change. The Deputy First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, has wished Arlene Foster well after her resignation as a DUP leader and First Minister, of course, effective on the 20th of May. This is a huge story. The former Northern Ireland Secretary, Peter Haynes, says that Foster's resignation is a very serious moment in politics. A shame for Arlene Foster because she was the first woman leader of unionism in Northern Ireland. She broke the glass ceiling and many people saw her as a very hopeful figure in the early stages. But I think she lost her way. So that was Peter Hain there. Many wondering how the contest, perhaps, uh, rather than coronation of the next DUP leader, will uh, work out. The Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, told RT Radio this morning that Ireland's government will work with any new DUP leader. And we'll see how that process works out, because it'll be the first time they've ever elected a leader for that party. Meanwhile, the Resolution Foundation is arguing that the government should expand its social safety net. Now, the research group's campaigning for broader furlough-type payments to people who lose their jobs even after the pandemic. Now, they would echo, of course, the payments that were made to those laid off during the crisis, where unemployment support is paid at 80% of previous pay for three months. And that could help address, which have been very heavy criticisms of the UK's welfare system, which once uh, was the origin of most of these, but is now considered one of the least generous in the developed world. Yeah, interesting, that drumbeat uh, for more of a social safety net in Britain. And meanwhile, Sky has revealed that the government has imposed an 85% cut in aid to a United Nations family planning programme, so a help to the world's poorest nations. It could have helped to prevent some 250 maternal and child deaths. Overnight, the UNFPA, that's the UN Population Fund, released a long statement warning that the cuts will be devastating for women and girls and their families across the world. And once again, the parliamentary bullying crisis seems to be rising, raising its head. MPs have approved a change to Parliament's complaint system, which is going to mean that from next year, allegations of bullying and harassment can't be raised more than a year after the alleged incident took place. This doesn't apply to sexual misconduct claims, but it comes as open investigations are stretching over a longer time period, with the Labour MP, Janet Derby, revealing that she had been waiting two and a half years for the outcome of her racism and sexism complaint. 
Right, those are some of the news stories in the world of politics today. But let's move on because more than half of the British population now has received a vaccine. Online job adverts have bounced back to pre-pandemic levels. Almost half of workers were back at their desks last week and retail footfall is at about 80% of the level that we saw in the same week in 2019. So, in short, there's greater optimism, isn't there? Reflected also in the latest Kantar polling. They're much monthly barometer of opinions and voting intentions. And joining us as ever is Dr. Michelle Harrison, the CEO of Kantar Public, uh, with us once once again with her findings. Michelle, thanks for coming back on the programme. Interesting uh, to note that people are feeling a bit better about their own sort of personal financial situation, um, that people's personal income is uh, not being affected as much by the pandemic. Tell us more about that. Yes, absolutely. And I think if, if we look at where we are now compared to where we were in November, I don't think we would have ever dared to have been as positive. So we've actually now got more than half the country, 62%, saying that their income is, is not affected by COVID um, at all. And those figures are improving every month because uh, back to January, and that was just, you know, less than half the country said that they weren't being affected. And actually, we also see this uh, this greater positivity. We've got only 22% of the country saying that they think things will be worse in 12 months' time. Um, again, back in November, that was half the country who felt like that. And they're the best figures we've actually seen, well, since about 2015. Um, so we've got still got, I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. We've still got 23% saying that you know, meeting their household budget is harder today than it was a year ago. But those figures compared to where we have been previously over the last few months are, are hugely improved. But in terms of general well-being, I thought it was very interesting about the age difference in this, that younger people generally seem to have had it worse and still to be having it worse. And, and I think that's where now we really need to be focused because the overall impact of COVID has been felt much more uh, harshly by younger people rather than older people in terms of the economic impact. And if we look, you know, we've got the, the majority of people aged between 18 and 34 still saying that their income is affected. That's the majority, you know, the majority of our young people. And that, whereas if you look at a group who are aged between, you know, 55 and 65, it's a much, much smaller, smaller group, about 30%. The other thing that's really interesting is the impact on personal savings, because we'll see that rolling out over coming months as people start saving, uh, as people start spending again and going shopping. And if you look at the pattern, it, it, it's really interesting. You've got um, about 40% of the population saying their savings are the same now as mm. they were before COVID. And then you've got 20% who say their savings have increased and 20% who say their savings have decreased. And again, you see the age pattern in this. Older people tend to tell us their savings have increased through the pandemic. Whereas you look mm. at that group, not the youngest, because the youngest don't tend to have savings. But if you look at that group aged between 35 and 44, they've drawn down on savings to get them to get them through it. Their savings are reduced. And they're also, um, apart from younger people, that group most likely to say that they're really fearful for the future of their job. So, you know, we have got this very strong age distribution in the way we're coming out of this pandemic and how we're feeling. 
So then how does all of that play into what people think about, um, I mean, the, the Conservative government, um, you know, voting intentions? We are just a week away from local and mayoral elections. Um, you know, this is a very kind of crucial test. So how are people thinking now about the political parties? Yeah. So it's interesting because there's also a little bit of a gap at the moment between government overall approval levels and what we're seeing in the polls. But of course, some other things might be at play there. But if we look at government overall approval, if we look at it over the last few months, an enormous turnaround. I mean, back in November, we were saying that approval ratings were below 30 percent. Today, uh, more than half the country think that the government has handled the pandemic well. Um, 60% think government communications are good, and you've got a satisfaction level with the vaccine rollout of 75%. So, you know, that's generally, you know, the the vast majority of the country uh, recognise a good job having been done with the vaccine rollout. But if we move it to the polls, actually things are flat. Uh, still a significant gap. These are the national polls, a significant gap between Conservative and Labour of eight points. The Conservatives are down one, minus one point on last month, but so are the Labour Party, minus one point on last month. So no difference there in the gap between them. But what that's also saying, given, given that government approval ratings for the handling of the pandemic continue to rise we're not seeing it coming through in voting intention but as i said you know potentially other things getting in the way there well let's focus in on one or two of the issues that may be in the back of people's mind now vaccine passports comes up again and again the idea of a covid status certification government's sort of saying they'll do it sort of saying they don't know if they will what are people's responses on that at the moment yeah, so kind of ha- uh, holding steady. So the support for a passport, a vaccine passport for international travel isn't increasing, but it's kind of hanging in at around the same level as last month, just dropping a tiny bit. 60% of the people we're polling say that they do firmly support a vaccine passport for international travel. What we've also done in the last month is have a look at this for how people feel about passports in order to enter into pubs or leisure spaces or shops or supermarkets and you see some differences there um but a high proportion really 46 percent think people should have a a vaccine uh, passport to enter into a pub or a leisure space drops to only a third for supermarkets which which uh, you know you can you can understand the reasoning behind that very split on age older people far more likely to be pro a vaccine passport for entering into public places as compared to younger people Mm, That's interesting, that split. And then lastly, this, as we, um, you know, look at the disaster that's unfolding, there's no other word for it, the the awful humanitarian crisis in India. What are British people thinking about global cooperation, about how much help we should be sending to others? And and it is a truly awful situation. Um, We have, uh, what we've got is a figure of 23% for overall approval of how well the government is doing internationally so there is a sense and we've seen a a big change since since last year and since last may actually we've seen a real shift in how well the public view international cooperation between governments it was at the over 50 percent back in may last year now it's at, at half of that so there's a view um really i think that the government has done a very good job at home that the international cooperation is weak.
Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.